You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Romans 8, 1 through 5. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your provision in all things for us, a place to gather, a place to sit under your word, a place to worship you, a place to come to the table in our unity with each other and with your son. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, It's weird being here, but this is great. Uh, If you've never been in this building... If you've never gathered with us at Christchurch, there's some people here for this, your very first time with us at Christchurch. Welcome. This is a weird Sunday. Uh, It's a weird Sunday for me. This is where I, Desert Springs Church is where I was the youth pastor for four years, uh, going on like 11 to 7 years ago of my life. My oldest kids were like young kids at this place. Uh, But it's weird, like... This is my church. Like, you guys are our church, right? And so it's so good to be with all of you, even if it's in a weird place. Uh, It's in a different building. Uh, We've just finished up a 14-week summer walk through the book of Joshua. Uh, In three weeks from now, I can't wait to get back to the Gospel of Luke, where we spent many months together last year or earlier this year. We're going to get right back into Luke 9, jumping into one of the high points of the entire Bible, the often uh, ignored or underestimated transfiguration of Jesus. We'll get there in three weeks. But before we jump right back into Luke, after finishing up Joshua, we want to take just three weeks here and just kind of reset. Like, we want to think about who are we? Meaning, who are we as Americans today in 2023? How does being an American in 2023 shape us, form us into who we are? And who do we want to be as a people in 2023 and in 2024? How thinking through all those things affect who we want to be as a people in 2029 and in 2039? How often do you think about who you will be in 2039? That's a long time from now, but it'll be here in no time. Seriously. And so it's good for us to think about these things. Uh, because here's what we've noticed. Here's what we, as elders, we've been talking about these, this three-week series here. Here's what we've noticed just in lots of conversations together. Uh, not just about Christchurch, but what we've noticed about like a post-COVID uh, 2023 American world. And you aren't, we aren't the first ones to notice this. You can find lots of articles out there about, uh, thinking about what I'm about to present to us. Uh, even some articles that like, came out before 2020 in a pre-COVID world. But you've all heard of FOMO, right? F-O-M-O, the, the, the fear of missing out. Uh, this has surely been a thing. FOMO has 
certainly been a thing for as long as humans have existed. The fear that others out there are experiencing something that I'm not, something better, something deeper, something richer than what I am currently experiencing. And with the advent of social media in the late 2000s and then throughout the 20-teens, FOMO then went into hyperdrive. With our finely manicured and curated social media feeds, we only put out there what seems awesome, and we only see of others what seems awesome. And I fear, then, as I see what others are experiencing as only awesome, that I am missing out because my life doesn't seem or feel as awesome. And not just there from a zoomed out big picture view, but also then on a Friday, like on a random Friday afternoon or Friday evening, zoomed way in. Like obviously some people, some people in this room are more extroverted than introverted. So this doesn't, or some are more introverted than extroverted. So perhaps this doesn't universally apply. But if everyone is going to this thing, if everyone in my life is going to this concert, this party, this hangout, especially if I wasn't invited to that thing. I want to go to that thing, but these people are not. I feel like, and I'm fearing that I am missing out on a good time. Or maybe if my, like my church or my college ministry or whatever is putting on some event or some conference, especially three years ago, then I am going to sign up for that thing and do that thing. I want to do that thing that most other people in my life are doing because I don't want to miss out on the potential relational hangout, the relational time that they're experiencing together, the key insights that the people that are closest to me in my life are gaining and gleaning from. But many have observed that. While FOMO is still present at a low level, it is being replaced. FOMO is being crowded out by FOBO. And FOBO, we might say, is the fear of better options. Not the fear of missing out, but the fear of better options. It's like the constant maybe on the RSVP evite of our life. Like we just kind of maybe everything now. And it's not just that I don't want to commit to the party or the get together, get together on Saturday or the marriage seminar on Friday or something because maybe some better party or some better seminar might pop up in the meantime or something like that. But instead, increasingly, the better option might just be a Netflix night by myself. Like teenagers today aren't getting driver's license like they did in generations past. People aren't dating or getting married like they did in generations past. All of these things require initiative. All of these things require risk. That being just by myself in my bedroom with my phone and Netflix, that doesn't require risk. And all of this is creating a culture and a society where just everyday decision-making then, in general, can become very, very difficult. And so the calculus almost becomes, look, I don't even feel like I have the ability to move through this afternoon, much less have the ability to commit to something at the end of the week on Saturday, certainly not something a month from now or a year from now. Psychologists are finding that a culture that increasingly prioritizes mental health, increasingly prior prioritizes self-care and therapy, all good things, all good things when approached rightly, can nevertheless, when we become so increasingly inwardly focused on ourselves, we are now a society that is now more anxious and not less, even though we are a culture that is seemingly more caring about our own self, our own well-being, our own mental health, and yet we are more anxious. I was reminded the other day of Jeremy Renner's character in the movie The Hurt Locker. For years, his character has a simple daily task in the Middle East 
His task is to find bombs and deactivate them. Now, this is a job that would stress out all of us if this was our daily job. But in his life, he has a very clear daily task. Then when he is out of the service, when he comes back home to the U.S., he's just standing there in a cereal aisle in the grocery store at the end of the movie, and he breaks down. These sheer options in the cereal aisle make him paralyzed. He can't make a decision. Now, most of us aren't coming home from intense frontline military fighting, but for some of us, for an increasing many of us, efficiency and even completing small daily tasks can become overwhelming. Or, and this is a big one, we become the most discontent people in the entirety of human history. Because then we assume that, well, I don't really like my job. There's a better job out there. There are better neighborhoods out there. There are better cities or locations out there. There are better churches out there. And certainly all of those things are true. (laughs) Uh, Even maybe better churches, who knows? But because we are a people who are perpetually living our lives with like one foot in and one foot out of this commitment or that, we keep ourselves from experiencing the depth of meaning, the depth of contentment, and the purpose in the places that God has us in now. And so here's what we're going to think about for the next three weeks. One word, really. Committedness. This is not... That we do not intend this series to be some kind of a, like a, a pump-up series to try to like persuade all of you to buy in more to the life of our church so that we can finally do the things that we want to do or something like that. We hope this is going to be a recentering series to try to persuade more buy-in to the life of our church so that we can all experience the purpose and the joy for which God has created for us. Not so we can do the things that we want to do, but for the joy that God wants us to have. Now, I realize that I've just introed us here for a really long time. And actually, of the three sermons here, this Sunday, today, is going to be the shortest uh, of these sermons. This is meant to be kind of a table-setting sermon for the next two weeks. We cannot begin to think about our commitments that we make until we first understand deeply about God's commitments. So today we're going to think about this. We're going to think about how God commits to his people, how God commits to us. And then next week... Kyle is going to preach on how God's people commit to God, the response, the reciprocal reciprocal response. And then the following week, Rabo is going to preach on how God's people commit to one another. So I don't really love parachuting into a book without its wider context, especially the book of Romans that you heard Jess just read from, Paul's magnum opus. But I'm going to get us through just the first few verses of Romans 8, verses 1 through 5 that Jess read. And then Kyle and Rabo are going to take over in the next two weeks in Romans 12. But tonight, we're going to think through two questions tonight. How does God commit and why does God commit? How and why does God commit? All right, here we go. How does God commit? Despite Romans' reputation about maybe being like this a systematic theology book about the law and about salvation. Uh, The book of Romans is really about preserving the unity of the church. Now, all of those things is true. The law, salvation, God's glory, all of these things are true. But this is a book that Paul is writing about preserving the unity of the church. In Romans 1 through 7, Paul is working through the theological and historical distinctions between Jews and Greeks, between Jews and Gentiles. He's been working through those chapters. He's been working through the bad news of sin and death. And then at the end of Romans 7, Paul is wrestling through who he is. Left to himself, who is he? 
is like a representative of all of humans. We all experience the same thing. He's giving himself as like this avatar of humanity. In verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner inner, inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He is saying, the bad news is really bad news. There is both both an objective condemnation for sin and then a subjective guilt for sin. There is something objectively true and something that we subjectively experience and feel because of sin. Separation from God. In Romans 1 through 7, Paul is telling us and showing us that there is absolutely nothing that we can do about this, objectively or subjectively. But, turn to Romans 8. And again, this is so weird for it to have just to start reading verse 1 here. But Romans 8.1 is perhaps the sweetest sentence to have ever been written. The sweetest sentence to have perhaps ever been spoken. So let me just read this to you and let this just wash over you. Because there is objective guilt and subjective shame and guilt. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And in the rest of the chapter, Paul will then unpack how we can, therefore, because no condemnation is for those who are in Christ Jesus, he is going to tell us how we can then accomplish what is objectively true and subjectively true, how we can align those things. He's saying we are to set our mind on the Spirit. To set our mind on the Spirit is life and peace. To set our mind on the, on the Spirit is to experience subjectively what is already true objectively. To experience subjectively the lack of guilt and shame, what is true objectively, that there is no condemnation. But how? How do we do this? How do we experience this? How do we experience no guilt or shame when... We still sin. How do we do this? Well, how is this accomplished? By the triune God committing to the salvation and the redemption of his people. Throughout Romans 8, one of the most Trinitarian chapters in the entire Bible, Paul is laying out what the triune God does, what the Father purposes, the Son accomplishes, and what the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. That is what Paul describes in chapter 5, a world of people who hate God, This is a world of people who are enemies of God. They have suppressed the truth about him that they intuitively know, chapter 1, and they have zero spiritual life on their own, left to themselves, chapter 6. They are dead. But then God, God invades that indifferent and rebellious death and slavery. And God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus comes not in glory, but in humility. And yet still in humility, he shows his heavenly authority over his creation. He teaches with heavenly wisdom over worldly foolishness. He conquers with his heavenly life over worldly death. He lives and dies in our place on the cross for the joy set before him, the glory of God and the salvation of his people. And then in all of that, the spirit, again, so much 
is what Paul is going after and doing here in Romans 8. What the Spirit is doing then is applying all of that reality. Everything that the, the Father has purposed, that the Son accomplishes, now the Spirit makes it all real, makes it experientially true and real for His people, makes it real for me, makes it real for you. If you would come to Christ, if you would trust Him, if you would walk by the Spirit for His life and His meaning. But how does God commit to His people? By moving to them in the first place in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and in the application and the sealing and the transformation of his people by his spirit. Now, I've said this before a lot, but here's the thing about our salvation. And actually, here's the, the, the main takeaway that I want us all to walk out of here tonight with, that God is more committed to your salvation than you are. God is more committed to your holiness than you are. God is more committed to your joy and your contentment than you are. You are distracted by any number of millions of things, but God is not distracted. He is very singularly focused on your transformation, on your becoming like Jesus. Now, everything that we thought about last week or two weeks ago and wrapping up Joshua is still true, that there is a necessary response from God's people in light of all that he has done to put... Uh, this response is to put idolatry to death within our own hearts. We are to be careful to obey him. We are to cultivate greater love for him individually and corporately. All of these things are still true. But it is absolutely true that because Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our salvation, that it is not me, but when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When, I, when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Why? Because I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. When, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And then we also sang, if I should remain in the valley today, bless the Lord. He will give me his peace. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He guides me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, 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 he. He leads, we follow. He gives we receive. He pours out love and grace. We are filled, filled by it. He offers forgiveness. We are justified. And on and on and on and on. He will one day return. We expectantly wait. So this is how God commits to us by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. By life in the spirit that our subjective feelings might be more aligned with objective reality. And as we'll consider more deeply in two weeks, he commits to us by giving us each other. He gives us deep spiritual life together as his people. But if this is how God commits, why? Why does he commit to us in the first place? Now, so much of this answer to this second question is Kyle's sermon for next week. So I'm just going to skim the surface. And you will definitely want to be here next week. I don't know if we're going to be in this building or an FUMC. I don't know. Be wherever we are next week. But I think some churches in our theological tra tradition can read chapter 8 and then can read chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 and come away thinking about our salvation only in terms or categories of God's glory. Which thinking and understanding better 
and more widely, God's glory is a really, really good thing. We should come away from those chapters in a place of humble thankfulness, in humble and passionate worship. God is the divine potter, and I am the very insignificant clay. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is chapter 11. Like Paul is like tornado whirlwind of praise after thinking about all the things that God has done. And all of that is so true. And the ultimate answer to why God commits to his people is so that he would get increasing glory for himself. Not in like an egomaniacal way, but because God is the most glorious and the most beautiful being in the universe, to give his glory away to lesser beings is idolatry. And to invite creation into the glory of himself, on the, alternatively, is to invite creation into life, into joy. But that word that I just said is true. To invite us into knowing him is joy. I think we can perhaps misunderstand the glory of God and miss the joy of God. Yeah, 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 he's he's an all-powerful judge and an all-powerful king, and I owe him my life because I have to so that he'll get more glory. But then miss out on, or at least minimize, but because he's a good father, that in giving him my life, I get more. I get more joy that those who would lose their life actually find it. That I get more peace, I get more security, I get more contentment, I get more ultimate purpose. Now again, more next week. And I think I've used this illustration before, but bear with me here. Uh, At the end of Infinity War, I know, I know. uh, But most of the Avengers, they've uh, they've holed themselves up uh, in Wakanda and Black Panther's kingdom. Stay with me. Uh, And there's this force field. Uh, protecting everyone inside Wakanda from those who are on the outside. Like, it makes them invisible. They don't even know that they're there, and they're perfectly safe. I think we, I think most of us kind of just assume that we are to live our lives outside of the force field, and for those of us outside of the force field who come to realize their need and then pray that one day when we die, Jesus would bring us inside, to the, for, inside the force field for what, because of what he's done on the cross. But until then, we kind of just wait. And we kind of just live our life out there amongst all of the death and the struggle and the fear and the discontentment. And then, those who don't ever say, like, the Jesus password or something... At some point in their life, they're going to stay outside of the force field. And then after death, while we get to go inside the force field, they go to an even worse place. But across the board, throughout the Bible, the the Wakandan image of salvation in the Bible is that of when someone becomes a Christian. She doesn't one day enter the kingdom of Wakanda someday long from now after death. When she comes to Christ, she enters the peace of Wakanda immediately. She doesn't walk around outside the force field for her entire life, just biding her time and waiting for death, continuing to live her life like she did before she came to Christ, as if she had not entered his peace. No, she has become a Wakandan. Her life is in the kingdom both now and forever, Wakanda forever. Now and forever. Is that a snort? That was really good. Uh, 
So here's the thing. The, the way through the baptismal waters that we observed and thought about last week is the way into the force field of God's kingdom. Now, I want to be very careful here and not suggest that it is baptism that saves. We are justified or made right before God by grace through faith alone. And what we saw last week with Matthew and Isabel, if they had somehow died before we got together last week on, at 4 p.m., they had died that morning, we can be confident that they were still citizens of the kingdom of heaven because of their faith in the person of Jesus and what he had accomplished on their behalf. But the baptism waters are the waters of belonging. They are the waters of contentment. They are the waters, get this, of commitment. And I think we understand that. If you've ever joined us on a Sunday when we baptize new members, you'll hear us ask the person two questions of commitment. We ask, will you commit to the church and will you commit to Jesus? And there are two I will responses when we baptize somebody of commitment. But the waters of baptism are a two-way street of commitment. That also God says, he's mine. Matthew, he's mine. Isabel, she's mine. My son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. I have washed him clean of a guilty conscience. I have brought her to the death of her former self and raised her to new life in Christ. I have done these things and I will continue to do these things. So that even though we have a, perhaps a different understanding of the way that Martin Luther understood baptism, we can understand baptism similarly. That when Luther experienced times of temptation, times of doubt, he would respond, sometimes loudly and yelling it, Luther would respond, I have been baptized. When we, have, when we experience the same moments of temptation, of doubt, of discontentment, I have been baptized. He has saved me. God, the Father, has purposed. God, the Son, has accomplished. God, the Spirit, has applied my salvation. He has committed everything to me, so now I can commit everything to Him. I belong. I am His. And then last week, after the baptisms, we affirmed our covenant of fellowship together as well, and we used the word commit or commitment Five times throughout our covenant of fellowship when we read that out loud. With words even more like we purpose, we endeavor, we resolve. These kinds of words littered throughout the rest of our covenant of fellowship. Because of God's commitment to us, we commit to him and we commit to each other. But now I really am preaching Kyle's and Rabo's sermons. So we're going to wrap it up here. This is a shorter sermon today, but again, this is just table setting. The next two weeks are going to get way more practical. But we cannot eat that meal until we have first set the table and the food is right in front of us, that God has given us himself. That last verse that we sing in, in the valley, for the Lord, he has given himself. He gives us himself so that we might have his life. We're going to think about how all of this is going to perhaps speak to our anxieties, our discontentments which surround us, of keeping our options open, of our fear of better options, of our paralysis with all of the options. Because God has committed himself to you from eternity past to eternity future, today matters. The next 12 months of the life of our church really, really matter 
to who you are going to be five years from now, to who we are going to be five years from now, to who you are going to be 30 years from now, 50 years from now. And because God is good and because God has given me purpose, I can then live today with initiative, with hard work, with effort, and with risk, knowing that my life, even failure, is not bound up in my accomplishments, but what God has accomplished for me. And in all of this, to again, to again quote this, that if you are in Christ, even amidst your failure, God will not stop loving you because he never began. Think through the the timeline of God's love for you. He will never stop loving you this way into eternity future because he never had a beginning point here. There was no time where he was not loving you. But in eternity past, for those whom he has set his affection on, whom he has set set through his wisdom, his future salvation on, he never began loving you. He always has in eternity past. So we can be confident that he will in eternity future. He loves you and he has given you himself that you might become his. Bought with a price. No longer your own. He has redeemed you if you are his. I am so glad to be his. I am now so glad to be bought together that he just doesn't buy a bunch of people, individuals for himself, but he buys a people. He redeems, he saves, he calls out a people for himself. So glad to have last week welcomed new members into this mutual fellowship of the king. People of the king. If this is not you, if this is not something that you have come to believe, you're kind of trying on this new Christianity thing, thinking what it, think about what it's like, trying to understand and have questions answered. We'd love to answer these questions. Ultimately, it's not about your commitment to the Lord. And yet, if you are hearing this message today and saying, I do, I understand that there is objective condemnation. I do subjectively feel alienated. I object or subjectively feel shame and guilt in my life. The Lord has come for you. He has died for you. And it is now, in light of this, our duty to repent, to respond, to give him our lives, that this is something that you've never done, we would love to talk to you about this, about what it would mean to become his, to follow him as your king, to have trust in him as your life and your salvation. But we're going to finish up our time tonight, and I'm going to pray for the rest of this time tonight and for our time together over these next two weeks, that we would first, before we even begin to think about commitments to God, commitments to each other, that we would first just so deeply understand God's commitment to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray. We are so self-focused. Our vision is so filled up with our own uh, passions, with our own hopes and dreams, with our own anxieties and discontentments, with our own self-worship, that we are so, uh, it is so difficult to see and believe who you are, to see and to believe what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus and what you have done for us and sealing us as your own with your spirit. God, give us eyes to see. Lift our eyes. Lift our eyes to a a wider and a deeper horizon. Help us to realize and experience, even subjectively, of what it means to live life in the kingdom. Not just waiting for some future reality, but experiencing it more and more today. 
what that might mean for our lives and commitment to you, what that might mean for our lives and commitment to each other. We pray all these things, that you would do these things for our joy, for our mutual edification, for our mutual contentment, that we might encourage each other, and that you might get great glory as a result of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.